organizations are now going to be forced to have their own and fairly sophisticated data infrastructure within the business. Um, so getting to know your customers from a data perspective is going to become part and parcel um, of a uh, enterprise uh, offering that sits within the organization. So while you won't be able to track them using Google's technology, organizations will have to develop their own methods to be able to get to know deeper the customers that they serve. Um, and so this complements this view of the single view of customer that's been you know circulating for the longest time. Um, but it's also going to mean that enterprise strategy has to change fundamentally to allow us to be able to get identity and real identity verified um, and managed in a, in a really responsible way. Welcome to the CMO Corner with myself, Tabani Kumalo. This is officially season one, episode one of the CMO Corner podcast. I'm excited about the marketing journey that we're going to take here as we bring on different marketing executives and current chief marketing officers, or even maybe past chief uh, marketing officers. But I want to make sure that we also align on the whole purpose of the podcast. So I've, I, I started the podcast to make sure that aspiring marketers and current marketers actually have a knowledge base around the space of marketing and we grow in our knowledge, right? And that's the only way in which we actually want to prosper. But also, I want to make sure that we, we, we start taking steps to bring marketing back to its rightful and respectful place in the world of business by bringing in these CMOs and marketing executives who will show the value that different marketers that actually are great at their job and how they've actually added value into the boardroom. So without any further ado, I'm about to introduce our first guest though, who is a chartered marketer himself. He is the co-founder and CEO of Bridge Labs, a software development business and chief future officer of the Brave Group, a creative agency. Prior to this, he was group head of digital marketing at NetBank and also a client partner at the amazing Lou company, Facebook, and decided to ditch all of that and say, you know what, let me actually go back to the space of entrepreneurship and running my own business. I'd like to introduce Musa Kalenga. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What a what a generous introduction, Mr. Kumalo. <laughs> After reading all of that, Musa, this is the part where someone says, teach us, master, how do you do it? Teach us, teach us. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the, the, some people say that it's a it's it's a it's a it's a feat. Other people say it's just really stupid. But I've always uh, I've always been very curious about lots of aspects of my own life, as well as been stimulated by uh, the world that we live in, particularly our continent. So you know, I found myself getting busy with a lot of things um, that I believed um, would add value not only to me but to the continent. And creativity has always been one of those things. Um, and fortunately. I've got uh, the gift of the of the gab, and I've got the ability to think with both my left and my right brain. And so I've tried as much as possible to kind of create journeys and opportunities that uh, that stayed true to that. Um, and uh, most of the time, it shows up as being very nonlinear and sometimes quite unstructured. Um, but in my head, it, it made sense. And uh, in the early days of, of it all, it meant doing a lot of different things. Um, and over time, refining where I wanted to focus my energy how I wanted to spend my time. Um, and that's kind of how I've developed uh, over these over these years. But uh, yeah, as I said, some people would say it's just utter stupidity and others would say it's, it's, it's maybe the sign of success. But 
I think it's a little bit of both. <laughs> Let's stick to the sign of success for now, Musa. <laughs> Funny enough, I actually want to share a story with you, Musa. I'm not sure if you remember how we met. I, Tobani, to be honest, I don't, eh? Let me jog your memory a bit. I was doing my final year in marketing with the IMM. Just come to Joburg and I was on some, okay, cool. Let me wrap up this final year. And I was staying with my brother at the time. Uh, long story cut short, he then invites me to a soccer game. He says, I'm entertaining some clients and prospect clients. You want to come hang with us? So I'm like, oh, snap. Okay, of course. I mean, there's free beer and I don't have to pay for a ticket to go watch a, a derby match at a stadium. Great. I'm coming with. Um, same to say, we rock up at the parking lot and we, I get introduced to all the different clients that are there. And you are one of the people that were there. So as I walk up to you, he then introduces he comes forward and he says, bro, this is the smartest marketer I know. And then he goes on to say, Tabani, Musakalenga, Musakalenga, Tabani, who is my younger brother. Um, and then we go off and we go and just watch the game. But the one thing that stuck with me is just the smartest marketer that he knows. And, and, and from, from that day on, I think that's always been my point of reference. Um, as a result, I think I've managed to build this good relationship with you and, and actually learned a lot from you, just purely based off someone calling you the smartest marketer he knows. I mean, that's, that's big. So as the smartest guy that Andy knows, let's talk marketing, Musa. <laughs> tell me, tell me how you got into the space of marketing because if you think about it, not the smartest guy someone knows is, is, a, is a marketer. Um, you could have opted for multiple things, right? As as the, the stereotypes around marketing are. Um, so why, how did you get into marketing uh, when you could have been, if you're the smartest guy and in actual scientist or you could have been a CEO or an engineer? <laughs> It's <laughs> so funny, the smartest child marketer you know. <laughs> I'll take it, I'll take it, my friend. Um, listen, so I, so marketing was uh, kind of found me in a way, in a weird way. Um, as I've mentioned, I, I've I've been I've been blessed with a with a very competent left and right brain, and for you know for all all of my life, I've actually been always been trying to find the intersection of both and everything that I did. So. You know, when I when I wanted to go and study, the, the first thing that made sense and that came to mind because of you know what you what you get told in varsity uh, in your, in high school um, and the expectations that you have to fulfill from a society perspective, there are very specific roles that you need to do if you you know if you even want to be a, a respectable member of society, including doctor, lawyer, accountant, physician, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So when I left high school, um, the plan was actually to move into actuarial science. Um, the view was let me. You know, use my more technical side of my brain to make lots of money, have a great office, you know, somewhere in Santon, and people pay me lots of money. Um, and uh, and that's effectively where my journey started. At that point, I'd been doing lots of stuff in the arts. I've been, you know, I was a, I was a, I was a choreographer. I used to dance a lot. I used to be involved with all the all the left brain stuff. Um, and mm. so and so the decision to study actuarial science was almost counterintuitive. But it felt like the right thing to do, you know, in, in a weird way, you know, once again, because of what society says. Um, and so so that's where I started. I spent my first year at COVID, um, you know, <laughs> trying to do actual science. And it was the worst year of my life, man. It, it was just bad because, you know, XI, and I love, I love, I love um, mathematicians. I love the sciences. I love the hard sciences because there is a certain degree of discipline that you need to be successful in that space. And when I was a kind of young hopeful and I got to this and I realized that 
my days and nights will be filled by quadratic equations and solving from first principles <laughs> and vertical asymptotes and those kind of things. I, it just did not seem like an appealing life for me. Um, and that was literally what you did. You, you know, you spent your days and your nights um, solving equations, understanding, you know, very numerical things. And, and as I said, I've got a lot of appreciation for that discipline, but I just didn't picture myself as that guy. Um, and, so, and, and so after failing my entire first year, which is a, an interesting lesson to learn in, in, in decision-making, um, I, I decided that uh, in my second year, I would do something that is not as technical, but I believed that aligned more to my personality and, and, and about what I thought about the world, my, my orientation around the world. Um, and, and that's where I, I registered to do a BCom general and uh, I discovered you know, marketing and, and marketing in particular, even at that stage, my lens was more the kind of brand econometrics aspect of marketing. So I was very interested in the valuation of brands. How does Nike cost so much? What's the difference between Nike's value and, 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 and Apple's value? So that was literally the lens I was, I was still applying to marketing even at that stage. Um, so, you know, once again, I was trying to marry this technical and this creative brain of mine to try and find a happy place. So, so that was my foray into marketing. And needless to say, when I did that... Uh, that change from Axi to, to to a BCom general, and I started, you know, focusing on marketing. Um, I was I was extremely stimulated. I found it interesting. I found um, the work that I was doing. I found the subjects that were, you know, that were being taught um, extremely interesting. Um, but at the same time, I was always applying a very technical lens. And at that stage, mm -hmm. you know, things like digital marketing were, you know, very early days. You know, websites were kind of becoming a thing. Um, they were there, but they weren't really there. Um, and, uh, you know, little did I know that that would ultimately end up being the, the kind of the technical aspect of marketing that I'd, uh, I longed for at the time. So that's how I got into marketing to start. Funny enough, listening to your story, I can actually relate, right? In that when I was in high school, I actually wanted to do IT. I thought when I went to Varsity, I'm going to sit in an office and get paid the big bucks because we were told IT is the next big thing to do. But I, I, I then shadowed a guy by the name of Cameron, I'll never forget Cameron, um, who rocked up to pick me up in an old buggy. And he was dressed formal with the shirt and he had his chinos, his big chinos. Um, shout out to Cameron if he's listening. <laughs> um, so I rock up there with my tie as well. I had a tie, shirt, formal shoes, pants, everything. Just rock up and then do this IT thing. You drive around with, with Cameron um, so my surprise, we going up to pick up, literally pick up printers, fix um, some of the client's fingerprints and check what is wrong with the system. And I hated it. Um, I actually literally quit on day three as a result. And, and, and after that, I'm like, I'm not going to finish a week how I had initially committed. Um, but then I decided, you know what, actually, let me go back to the drawing board and see what I actually really like. I like people I like to do. Uh, multiple things. I love brands. So, and and fast forward to that, I'm 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 in marketing now because I discovered that marketing is actually what I wanted to do. So I can totally relate um, to to your story. So then you, so you study marketing. Um, and funny enough, I remember reading your book and you were saying XI actually sounds cool. Um, I didn't even know it was called XI. Um, so anyway, you study marketing. In your process of studying marketing, again, in your book, you state that you actually started a business. From what I know, your business actually did very well. Maybe maybe talk to me around that and, and everyone who's listening. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, I was, as I said, I was a bit, I was a bit of a busybody. So 
I got 16 of my friends together and we said, hey guys, um, you know, I'm pretty sure none of us, you know, want to be employees for the rest of our lives. We want to be millionaires by the time we're 30. That was kind of our thing. Um, so how are we going to do that? And so the best route to that for me seemed to be, you know, let's start a company and let's see what happens. So started Monati Fellas um, in my uh, third year, I think I was at Vits. Um, got 16 of my friends together, try to do this thing. Effectively, we were just throwing parties around Bramfontein pretty much. But I was like, <laughs> I, was the, I was the sponsor of all of this because um, I, was, I was working at the same time. So a lot of my friends at Varsity weren't working. They were just like studenting like hardcore. So I was putting money in and, you know, we'd make a little bit of money and I'd have to share it with everybody. And I was like, no, man, this is not working. Um, and um, because of my nature and, you know, an, an appetite for risk, I kind of said to everyone, Look, let me go at this on my own. I kind of just decided that, you know, I'd, I'd stop involving all these other people. I mean, I registered the CC at the time. It was in my name and all that jazz. And I thought, hey, I'm not getting value from these guys. So in my uh, third year, I was able to secure some work with ABSA. Um, and uh, that was kind of our first project project where we were doing research into young people to inform ABSA's new product development uh, process. Um, they were struggling at the time because uh, financial services started shifting. Um, Richard Branson arrived. You know, there was a lot of things happening and it was just changing uh, know how to respond. Um, and so Monati Fellas, that was kind of our first gig uh, where we got to do some interesting work. Um, and I got to, you know, start getting exposed to how um, the, the, the corporate side of marketing works, how people make decisions on that end, what inspires them, what is boring, what is value and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we continue to do similar projects over the, you know, the duration of my degree. Um, and, uh, and I was also very fortunate, you know, once, uh, once my degree ended, um, I, I then did quite a bit of work with the, with the brand leadership group before they, before they acquired and took over um, Nati Fellas uh, altogether. So I spent the latter half of my, of my, my, my initial based uh, bachelor's degree um, just figuring out how I would take what started out as an interesting idea throwing parties um, then transitioned into some research data collection vehicle, and then now was potentially some a company company that would work and you know add value within a bigger group of companies like the Brandishup Group. Um, you know, I went through a process of like, oh man, starting to feel like you know the imposter syndrome of you know I don't know how to run a big business. All of this stuff is happening, but I don't know what's going on. And that's actually when I decided to do. Uh, my uh, my chartered marketer uh, designation. Interesting. So, and I would also imagine that you getting your chartered marketing designation kind of helped you because in that you start you you moving from running our own or running your own small business to now you're actually part of IHOP uh, or the brand leadership group and it's an it's a good oiled machine. It's running. It's a big business or it's a, it's a small business but quite bigger than what you initially had and probably the that designation on its own kind of give you that credibility when you're walking to a, a bigger space or a bigger room yeah absolutely i mean it's you know it's, it, i think it's a fictitious feeling but it is true you know imposter syndrome is like you don't know what you don't know um you're here and you don't know whether everybody's looking at you going this person doesn't know what they're talking about um you are confident enough to add value i mean you've got the grit you're there so you know, it's a weird, weird uh, space to be. But yeah, I think for me, the chartered marketer designation ultimately gave me the confidence and um, the stamp of approval, for lack of a better word, to be like, actually, you know what? I know what I'm talking about. Even though I'm young, even though at the time, as you mentioned, I, yes, I was uh, the youngest uh, ever designated chartered marketer, um, I could stand my own. I was very fortunate in that I had exposed myself widely to many projects, marketing, uh, consulting, and otherwise up until that point. So 
it gave me a, a you know a very good leg to stand on that was not necessarily just marketing orientated um but it also helped me to understand the zeitgeist of what the challenges that marketers senior marketers would be facing right so you know the notion that marketing didn't have a seat at the decision making table um the notion that you know as marketers we often take a big steer from uh, either risk or sales or the more the kind of the harder um aspects of business um and so to have a voice you have to speak that language and speak it well you know so that was you know that gave me that very clear understanding early in my career which was extremely useful um and uh, and it's really helped me just to form my career and my reputation around being able to uh, straddle any really technical aspect of business be it operations finance you name it um and provide them with a very clear understanding of what marketing can do um and i think that was really useful to get done you know in my in my early 20s so so yeah it was a really it was a really cool uh, transition into into the world of 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 big business for lack of a better word funny enough your story actually has merits because it highlights one an evolution perspective and i think it highlights the value of being busy with multiple things in that as young people we should also stretch ourselves in the point where we say actually we're volunteering to do this task we we're, we're volunteering to get involved in this project as a, as a result we 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 build this base of we've got a lot of knowledge when eventually a big opportunity comes and as a result i think that most probably would have helped you when you moved into corporate because you had an interesting story you were an entrepreneur who started his own business but then moved into corporate let's talk about that so i think yeah corporate is similar just i i call it a i call it a bit of a social experiment you know so as a young person once again you know this this notion around imposter syndrome where you know you started a business you've got a degree you're a chartered marketer um and then to a certain extent you know I went from you know from Munati Fellows to IHOP which is you know a bigger business but it wasn't a big business um I spent time within the brand leadership group with Teve um and then you know my transition out of the brand leadership group was into you know Netbank which is a massive organization um and so you know as I said I went from the ground up went from you know a startup out of varsity to you know an ihop which was a division of a of a big you know medium sized business um then i went from you know that to you know netbank which is a big multinational business and then i went from netbank to a big global business um which is which is which is basically so it was very much kind of almost stopping at each stage and size of enterprise um and picking up the learnings and understanding what i didn't know or what i did what i needed to learn um or what i felt i didn't uh, have exposure to and i think that as a, as as a whole allowed me to make the choice and choose where i wanted to play right so it, you know it, it's not taken for granted that i you know i've ended up in entrepreneurship i could have chosen to stay in, in a big technology company i could have chosen to stay in big enterprise like standard bank mtn any one of them if i wanted but what it allowed me to do was to have an experience broad enough to inform my decision Um, and so that's what I always encourage about young people and even marketers is that and to your point spend time in different spaces when you're young you've got time you've got energy do it for free um you know do it uh, diligently and ultimately you are not you're not doing yourself any disservice you're actually building a lot um that is unseen and unquantifiable until the moment comes where you get a big opportunity and you have to step up and that's what you know the big match temperament t- tends to be is that you can step up to these opportunities because of the exposure that you had and when people capitulate when they get these big opportunities it's usually because they haven't put themselves in multiple different uh, contexts so so that was very much you know my 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 psychological 
approach in that I was trying to get into different spaces. Um, when I moved from you know brand leadership to to NetBank, there was a lot that I learned. There's a lot that I I, I actually knew already, but there is a lot that I learned. Um, when you move into big corporates and multinationals, you know the role of leading people who are not necessarily reporting to you, um, inspiring people, creating urgency, uh, creating you know those are all really interesting things that you learn, um, which I could have never learned in a in a in a, in a small organization. So so each you know stop along the journey for me was really really important. And it's evident that every stop in your journey was important, and I think you made an impact at every stop because you've managed to build these relationships. Even going into corporate, I think you and I spoke offline around how you had done work with Sydney before, and as a result, that's how that relationship built, and that's how you actually moved into one running your own business and getting to a point where you are being integrated into a bigger business, which was NetBank. Let's talk about let's talk about why why actually why do you think um, Sydney took a bet on an entrepreneur, a marketing entrepreneur, and said, you know what, actually this guy runs his own business. He's a marketing entrepreneur. He's brilliant, but I actually want to bring him into corporate SA because you could argue that there were other marketers in a in a in a similar role that he was trying to create that could have actually done the job from different banks or different industries right why why you why do you think why why you actually stood out for him no no kudos to him kudos to him um you know Sydney and I I actually started engaging with him while I was still at IHOP right so at IHOP I was actually selling um online reputation management services to SAB where Sydney was before he went to Medbank and so, and so we were in this process where I was trying to get SAB to sign up to online reputation management provided by IHOP. Um, and we kind of got to know each other and I, you know, I was active and I was pitching to him and I was, you know, I suppose I was in his face. Um, and then he just went quiet, right? I'm, you know, I'm pitching to this guy, I'm selling to him and, you know, he just goes quiet. <laughs> then you know, a couple of months later, he shows up and he's, the, he's now the integrated division exec at NetBank. And I'm like, how, oh, this guy, you know, and then he calls me, funny enough. He then calls me and says, Musa, hey, I want to have another chat with you. I said, okay, cool, no problem. I met up with the guy and just kind of, you know, he told me he's transitioned and he's now in this new role. And I think what he realized early, um, all props to, to him, is that the integrated role that he had taken on board would require someone that understood digital more so than he did at the time. Um, and that, as I said, kudos to him because for someone to have that level of insight about themselves yeah. and yeah. around what needed to be done is something really, really admirable. So I think that's what he kind of went through in his own mind. And I think he then also made the decision that, you know, if he was to find someone from within the industry at the time, as you can imagine, it's, it's not easy to find good digital talent now. You can just imagine mm -hmm. what it was like then. Um, mm -hmm. and, so, and so because he had been exposed to me as a sales guy pitching to him, I think he had a fair degree of confidence that I knew what I was talking about. Um, I also knew that, uh, you know, the team that he would be leading did not have my uh, capability in at the time. So it would be literally like starting it from scratch. So he needed an entrepreneur. Um, and I think he just did the math around all those things. And he thought to himself, hey, man, this guy could be the guy that does the things, um, you know. And so and so we back and forth for a while about it because I was a little bit nervous to join this big organization. I thought I wouldn't fit culturally. I thought it wouldn't make sense. I thought a lot of things. It ended up being actually an extremely pleasant experience uh, from a corporate perspective. That story around Sydney is actually an interesting one because I think it highlights that with someone who has good leadership and strong leadership and strong self-awareness levels, at least, you quite understand that you need a strong team around you because it's only as good as your team, right? And, and in bringing in people that are actually 
strong, you actually start looking good from from your different level and and making sure that you represent yourself well, right? So let's move on to something that I actually read today. I saw something that spoke around trends, and funny enough, I thought let me read up on some of the things uh, that seem to be topical around the space of marketing as we are closing off Q1. So I want you to weigh in on some of them. So I picked up three. I'll just list three. There was tons of them, and see how you see this future around marketing. One from a trend perspective, maybe through, during now and moving on to next year or the next three years, and maybe also just let's broaden it up, right? Let's let's look at what marketing actually looks like in 2030. So some of the things that I picked up was the era of data ethics in that making sure that this businesses and brands actually should handle data because in a right way and make sure that it's an ethical way um and it's, it's a topical issue for businesses because if that system actually doesn't work and consumers feel like that data is not safe most probably they would not participate and for as long as that system is broken then there's 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 no relevance in data um and two i picked up that there's 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 a marketing world that's coming out with with no cookies, right? It says preparing for mark for marketing in a cookie-less world. Um, cookie, cookies have been great for us as marketers because it allows for me to just put this cookie on you and just tracks you everywhere you go. But with with Google, and I think Google's going to be the first one where they are removing and they're doing away with cookies. And with that said, it means now there's emphasis in innovation, there's emphasis in privacy first measurements. Um, and for us as marketers, we're going to have to start relying on other techniques or sophisticated techniques, at least, to, to measure live conversion modeling, etc. Um, and lastly, it was the, the point which I think COVID has actually brought to all brands and all businesses is around reaching the at-home consumer. Um, I've picked up with one of my brands that a lot of the on-home activities actually driven shifts in different pack sizes that consumers buy, et cetera. But here, the, the conversation is more around, it is, predict, it is predicted that in 2022, more than 80% of the consumer internet traffic will be driven by online video. And, and with that on its own, it kind of shows the acceleration that COVID or the pandemic has actually brought to us. Um, have you picked up anything different? Have you picked up the same things? Um, I'd like to hear you weigh in on this because... It, and I say this because I see a huge emphasis around digital data technology and the space, particularly within within marketing, and it, it coming forward uh, much more quicker than we would have expected. Um, I think you know in, in twenty thirty number one. I think if you look at a corporate from a corporate perspective, there's probably going to be a merger um, or a convergence of the functions and roles of sales, marketing, and innovation. So I think more and more. Um, that's going to come under one banner. It's going to become one discipline. And the corporate view is going to be they look at those things within the same ambit, right? Because the, the connecting point of those those different functions is, is exactly what you've spoken about, which is data. Um, and so, so for me, 2030 also looks like the liberation of data assets and data tools. Um, as you said, we're moving into a cookie-less world. So how do we respond as marketers? Um, I think the, the big thing that's going to happen is organizations are not going to be forced to have their own and fairly sophisticated data infrastructure within the business. Um, so getting to know your customers from a data perspective is going to become part and parcel um, of a uh, enterprise uh, offering that sits within the organization. So while you won't be able to track them using Google's technology, organizations will have to develop their own methods to be able to get to know deeper the customers that they serve. 
Um, and so this complements this view of the single view of customer that's been you know circulating for the longest time. Um, but it's also going to mean that enterprise strategy has to change fundamentally to allow us to be able to get identity and real identity verified um, and managed in a, in a really responsible way. I also agree with you. I think the ethics of communication um, and uh, ethics in general in relation to uh, to marketing will start to become more of a more of a thing. Um, you know, it boils down to you know how we communicate. So even the messages we put from a copy perspective, um, how those kind of messages are checked for uh, ethical veracity, right down to how we market to people and the databases that we build, right down to the algorithms that we are using in our systems um, to either qualify, pre-vet, et cetera, et cetera, how much bias is built into them, et cetera, et cetera. So I think ethics from a marketing perspective will become really interesting because it's a light that you can shine on almost all aspects of what we do um, and it will make for very interesting debates and conversations. So, those are the three things I, you know, I observe that uh, I think complement what you're saying, um, you know, in light with uh, what we might look to expect in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. And your bills actually show the importance of technology and data and, and for us as marketers to actually be closer to that space versus us feeling like it should sit only with the chief technology officer or chief information officer only. So do you, do you actually have any examples of brands that you think have done this well using the, 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 the data, the technology, and all these insights that come and actually use it to build better propositions for consumers um, at a marketing level? Yeah, I mean, I think the one that's probably worth noting that I've been watching quite carefully is, is Netflix. Um, and, uh, and Netflix for me has, has become really, really impressive over the last couple of months and, uh, and years. Um, firstly, if you just look at the appointments that they've been making, they're, they're employing powerhouse black females in positions of power within the organization. It's just been phenomenal. Um, every other day when I look on LinkedIn, um, the Netflix is hiring and they're hiring a diverse team of, of, of people and females in particular. Um, that are skilled and that are just going to be rewriting the script around Africa for the next generation. Um, they've also obviously as an organization used technology as a fundamental way to start shifting how we perceive ourselves as Africans. So the content that they're acquiring, um, the strategy they have around creation of content is really one of the things that will help us start to address and redress the way we visualize and then and, and, and see ourselves as Africans through the content that we consume. And it's something that's quite small, but it's also massive. If we think about the next generation or the next 10 years being so economically focused around what happens in this continent, um, Netflix are driving a really, really powerful underlying agenda around narrative that's converted into a business model. Like we all speak about it, right? We all talk about, you know, let's own our narrative. We all speak about, you know, changing the narrative, yes. et cetera. But Netflix as an organization in their hiring strategy, as well as in the business that they're building, they're ensuring that Africans are going to visualize themselves in a fundamentally different way um, in the next 10 to 20 years. And for me, that's really exciting. That's a core problem to be solved. And I think that's one of the organizations I think we can watch out for. Netflix is actually a good one in, in, in that you're right. I think the way they've used their data to tailor the content to be so applicable for the country or segment our continent in which they are currently available is is speaking volumes, and as a result, I think you can you can genuinely see their growth um, and the value that they're actually adding in the spaces in which they are playing, just just merely by using um, data. So, and so that's actually a very good example and one to to look out for and and learn from definitely. 
And in talking about value or adding value, I think this is a nice segue to my next conversational question. In in, in that, obviously you you um, you run your own advertising agency, or you or you're a member and a shareholder, obviously of the Brave Group, which is a creative agency. And I've been thinking about it for a while now. In that, the just the space around advertising and creative agencies, I think, and maybe it's me, and maybe I'd, I'd love to hear your insights in. Is the model around that most probably getting old? Do we have a lot of players in the market already? Is it saturated? Or there's actually room for improvement and it's actually the model is, is not old or the model is is not tired and, and it's just a matter of tweaking certain things to make sure that it's still impactful and it still continues to add uh, value for the brands that it currently services and the consumers that it serves. Yeah, so it's an interesting debate, this one. Um, and I was actually having a conversation about it this morning again. Um, so I think I had, a, I, had a, I had an interesting uh, viewpoint from, uh, from a colleague in, 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 the, in the industry this morning um, who is not necessarily an advertising person, but they've ended up in the advertising world. Um, and his view was, you know, there's actually nothing wrong with, uh, with the retainer model. There's nothing wrong with, the, the structure that was put in place because effectively what you're doing is you provide a service and people pay you on a regular basis for that service. Um, you know, when it comes to economics 101, there's nothing wrong with it as a model. But what is wrong is that over time, the, there's been a, um, a change in the value of what you're delivering in relation to what you're being paid, right? And that's the big issue. The big issue here is that I don't think clients and brands are averse to paying for services or pay, averse to paying agencies. I think what they're questioning is the value that they're paying for doesn't for them equate anymore. And so the big challenge is when we're looking at how we show up as agencies, if we are going to use the old way of thinking about it and the old way of, you know, just create an ad or just, you know, do a TV commercial or whatever it is, what has become very obvious is that's not sufficient anymore from a value perspective because there's a differentiation, there's a differentiation between what a client wants to pay and what they think is fair for them to pay. Um, and so what we have to do as agencies is double down on what it is that clients find valuable and build new models or new ways to service them with that in our consideration set. Uh, consulting businesses do this extremely well. Consulting businesses are always perceived as extremely valuable partners in any business, especially global business, because it's always clear what value they bring and it's very quantifiable. And therefore, the price that they can charge um, is then consummate to the value that they bring. In agencies, there's been a separation and there's a dystopia now around the price I'm paying and the value I'm getting. And so what we really have to solve for is making sure we increase the value and not necessarily potentially debate the price. We need to increase the value um, and ensure that as we increase the value, we're having conversations with clients to help them understand what else we can do for them within their business further than some of the traditional spaces which we're allowed to play. And so that's why the liberation of digital has been so exciting is that it's created a whole new way we can think about value and value creation for the clients that we served uh, in a very traditional um, way. So I think that's literally what needs to be done. I think we need to think about value more so. Um, and so we need to increase the value in relation to the price that clients have paid over the last couple of years. I do think the contracting terms when it's retainer versus um, project-based work keeps the agency on their toes, but it also makes it very difficult to build longevity because you want to attract and retain the best talent. And the only thing that really allows you that is a contract that gives you two or three years to be able to do so. Um, so there's other things that we just need to be considering and thinking about, but 
you know, they're in our new ways to potentially contract. They're in our new ways to engage with talent potentially anywhere in the world. Um, so there's, you know, there's ways we can start to, you know, think about how to look at it entirely in a new way. If the if the advertising agency model is not is not old, mm-hmm. uh, then I'm 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 definitely one of the people that are excited to see it evolve and actually um, grow. And you can and you continuously talk about this value add conversation, right? And and I also think that from a brand level or brand perspective, a consumer facing brand, mm-hmm. in that we. we we also have to take it a step further, right? When you move away from just businesses, clients and brands or um, agencies and, 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 and multinationals or brands or other brands that exist, at a brand level, I think we also have to play our part in adding value to the lives of our consumers. And, and purpose most probably is, is the buzzword that, that, that keeps coming up around, around that to give purpose to our consumers with, with the brands that are actually currently in the market. Yeah, I mean, look, I think as the, as the discipline of marketing evolves, um, you know, purpose is is now the thing, right? So at some stage, if you remember, it was all about experiential, right? That was kind of the buzzword in the marketing uh, in the marketing world. Um, but but purpose has now become really important, and it's become important not because of the sake of it becoming important, but it's because of the state of the world that we live in. Um, the state of the world that we live in is such that you know we are battling um, major catastrophic global challenges that are going to fundamentally change. Um, the look of our planet forever, right? And if that is our context as a planet, as a species and as a being, um, then it gives birth to an opportunity to be more purpose-driven about how we market, right? It's not, it's not a, as I said, it didn't happen overnight and it didn't happen by happenstance. It happened because of the context that we live in. And so brands and businesses, they're not rising up to that as a challenge, as a fundamental challenge, are the ones that are going to come short, fall short. Um, in addition, those are the brands and businesses that are not going to be relevant, right? Because consumers will start to become more educated about food security issues, about gender-based violence, around diversity, around how the planet is shifting fundamentally and will never be the same again. And as they educate themselves, they're going to start making smarter choices. As they make smarter choices, they're going to start um, substituting away from brands that are not tuned in to brands that are. Typically, the brands that are are probably and most likely going to be the ones that have defined a purpose and understood how they're going to be helping to solve those bigger problems. So I think it's a contextual shift. And I think for brands that haven't, that penny hasn't dropped yet. Uh, it's going to take a bit of time for them to, um, to claw back, but it's also going to be a lag effect. So by the time you do realize, um, unfortunately, the market will shift, shifted fundamentally. And so the space for new startups and new ideas um, and new business models is ripe and more than it's been ever before. And so the role of marketers is also to be in tune to that world. Um, what are the new startups that are solving problems for? What are the problems that they're solving? How are they doubling down on some of these issues? Um, and what do those things mean as a marketer interpreting that world into a big corporate company? So, so I think that purpose-driven uh, uh, thought is, uh, is much bigger than what it sounds like. But at the same time, it uh, requires for every brand and every business to make peace with what it means for them and to start the journey, to start orientating their marketing communications and brand story to fundamentally be different um, than an experience-based era, which is the one that we've just come from. Adding and building to that point, how do you think we balance, as we as we try and close off our conversation, how do you think we balance this, this notion of, one, meeting business expectations and also humanizing our brands and making sure that we deliver on the purpose that we've committed to our consumers and we don't get the pushback that we normally get at a, at a board level or directorship level um, in that you, you, you're committing to purpose, which most probably won't reap the rewards from the first year, second or third year. 
but it kind of has to take time and it's a long game right now how do we balance this notion particularly from a from a from a marketing perspective speaking to a bigger business and trying to get uh buy-in from from everyone involved so i think it's it's infinitely harder for established brands or brands that have already been in the market for a long time right because mm-hmm. to your point you're speaking to individuals who've been having the same conversation for the past 30 years and they've got some degree of understanding and comfort around those variables so for organizations that are coming from a legacy point of view i think it's infinitely harder because that is literally a look in the mirror and a redefinition of who you are versus a new company and a newer startup that's able to ultimately define that within the framework of purpose within the framework of i'm not doing things because it's csi i'm doing things because my business model solves the problem um i was i was speaking to a, a young lady the other day um who who works for one of these interesting um online uh, reputation management companies multiwater type vibes um and uh, and she's really passionate about helping um women all over sub sahara africa um effectively get the best access to 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 care healthcare when it comes to um uh, fertility issues um she's done a whole case study and she's realized that it's actually quite a crap experience and young africans go to you know places like india and they get treated badly etc cetera, etc cetera. now in her mind she thought about that business as a csi business sounds like no ways that is a very important business that can solve a key issue for women and because it solves a key issue for women we define it as csi and i was like no it's just a purpose driven business because it happens to be solving an amazing uh, challenge and you make money from it. it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it it just means that you're operating in a context where you've married purpose and co- and commerce right And so that's what I mean yeah. like the newer companies will be able to do it a lot easier. It's the older companies try and get netcare to try and think about that and change their business. Yeah. Really, hard. really really hard. Um not impossible but really hard. So I think you know you have to be cognizant of where you are. Um if you're in a big corporate massive company, small startup etc cetera, etc cetera, because some of these things will be easier to implement depending on where you find yourself. This has been such a great conversation Musa so as we close i think let's close off maybe with some things that you might want to share uh for aspiring marketers current marketers seasoned level marketers that are actually trying to change and make an impact in the brands what 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 lessons do you think you've learned in your career that you love to share and that we can all take home with us or take to the boardrooms actually uh with us Yeah I mean I suppose the one uh, that that I, I always try and advise is that just learn 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 like you know things have changed so much um and you know and things are changing so much I can't emphasize how important it is for us to be learning new things I can't emphasize how important it is for us to be deliberate around the information that we are putting into our our teams into our ecosystems i can't emphasize how important it is for us to share things because you know ultimately as we growing as professionals as we're growing as young people as we're learning and developing um there is not going to be a shortage of data and information out there what's going to start becoming a challenge is our ability to consume all of it so the sooner we figure out the right way and the right um uh, frequency of us learning knowledge and onboarding new information and converting that into value in our businesses the better So for me I always say for marketers because we are still in the fight for our place around the boardroom table make sure you're learning more than your counterparts make sure you're more educated and more knowledgeable about even fields outside of marketing so that you can become a more valuable marketer to any organization super is close it there
Thank you for your time, Musa Kalenga. Thank you for joining us. I think it's been a fruitful conversation around the the future of marketing and looking at a marketing space and how we add value in our different spaces. So all the success, my good sir, to you and your future endeavors. Until the next episode of the CMO Corner. Cheers, guys.